Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. And welcome. This is the Investor Coaching Show. I am Paul Winkler. Talking money and investing. You know, I think I'll just talk about a couple of uh, conversations that I had with friends. Well, new friends. It was actually a couple of people who said, hey, I heard you know a lot about money. You know, it was out um, where a friend of mine lives out of state. And he was saying, you know, telling a couple of us friends, oh, you got to go talk to this guy. And you know, I was just like, well, you know what? I'm I'm off, and I've got some time, and I don't often get to just talk informally to people, you know, that that don't uh, come through, you know, through business. I, I don't talk a lot about finances, <laughs> as you can imagine, you know, when I'm around home because it's like I talk this all the time. Okay, but it was one of these things I was just doing a friend of mine a favor, and you know, he said, "Hey, these guys, these friends, they just need help on a couple things," and it was just, it was fun. It was really fun just talking to these people, and I helped them out, and you know, referred them to some people in their area. But uh, but anyway, one of them was asking about you know philosophies on you know paying off a mortgage, you know, versus paying off a car. Uh, versus saving, and he was a good saver. I mean, he had some things going on in his 401k, and I thought it'd be just instructive to just walk through what I went through with him. But, you know, it was a situation where typically what I do when I'm looking at a financial plan, I go, okay, so the base of the financial plan, I need to make sure we got some savings, and you'll often hear three to six months worth of, of spending needs to be in savings, you know, nothing fancy, money market accounts, savings accounts, those types of things. Because a lot of times your disability policies at work, if you've got disability, hopefully you got disability, uh, will have maybe like a three-month wait before benefits kick in. Sometimes, some people have short-term disability, which kicks in sooner. But that is one of the reasons that you'll have that period of time. Then you'll have emergency money. You know, like for maybe your air conditioning goes out, your roof leaks or whatever. Uh, so typically you want to have a base of that. And then, you know, with a 401k, uh, in his particular case, I was having him make sure at least he was going up to the match that he got at his 401k. And his wife has said, you know, hey, the accountant thinks that she ought to have something where she, she can deduct it, make a contribution. And, and that those are types of things where you'll have pre-tax type of retirement vehicles, 401ks. Now, she was a sole proprietor, so it didn't make sense to do a 401k. You can do something called a solo k where you have higher contribution limits, but you end up in a situation where you have to pay a third-party administrator for a 401k, or you do a solo K, and you don't have a third-party administrator, but you can end up having to go and file 5,500 you know, tax forms if the account gets too large. So a lot of times I'm gonna go and look at maybe a SEP plan, a simplified employee pension, and you'll have a percentage. It might be like 20% of your income uh, it, there's kind of a quirk in the tax laws, 25%, but it you know, works out to 20. But you can go and put money in that, and depending on your income level, that is a pre-tax type of program. Now, there also you'll have Roth features in some of these that I'm going to talk about as well now because the tax law just changed. But 
The idea being that you take a percentage. Now, the problem is if you have employees, you have to also put a percentage in for all of them as well. So SEPs, a lot of times you're not going to see them. Simplified Employee Pension, again, is what it's, a, it's an acronym. You're not going to see them with companies that have employees. And I do. I, there's some exceptions. You know, I have some companies that I work with, and they do that because they really want to help other people that work for them. They've been really loyal, and they don't mind putting a high percentage of a person's pay into the savings. But it just you don't normally see it. So that's one type. Now, another type would be a simple plan. And simple is, that's an acronym as well. Simple is a savings incentive match for employees. Uh, you'll have contribution limits on that as well. It works a little differently, though. You know, like with a, with a set plan, you got that percentage. So if you put, let's say, 10% of your income away, and you got an employee, you're going to put 10% of their income away. Now, there's, there are some exceptions to some of these things, but usually that's what it looks like. So you hear me hesitating because it's, it's, you can get into some of these things, and the nuances can be really complicated, so I don't want to overcomplicate this. But that is one thing. The simple plan is you'll have a 15000 in 2023. It's a $15,500 contribution that you can put in. And then if you're over age of 50, you can put in another 3500 So, you know, for the, this year, you got 19000 that you can put in. And that's a pretty decent amount of money to put in. With 401k, you can put 30000 if you're, um, if, if, and, and that's just a higher limit. But what happens is that you also have a match. And with companies that have employees, you can do a flat 2% for all the employees, and then what happens is 2% of their pay goes away. Or you can do a match of three. So, you know, if they put 1% away, you're only ha you only have to do 1%. If they put 2% away of their pay, you have to do two. If they do 3%, you have to do three. If they do four, you do three. So it's just 100% match up to 3%. And that is something that a lot of times entrepreneurs will use. I have a lot of accounting firms. You know, I find that accounting firms like to do that and ask me for those types of programs. So that is, and you often see that because they don't want to pay the administration costs for the 401k. Yeah, you can put more in, uh, but the issue is that with the 401k, you have to hire somebody to do what's called testing of the plan to make sure that you don't have a situation where, oh, good grief, all of a sudden now uh, the, the person that runs the company is being overly benefited by the plan. You know, that's the idea behind it. So, you know, we we're looking at that, and then, and then he's just asking, so, you know, what else? And he said, Roth versus regular. And I says, well, you got to really look at the differential between your marginal rate. So if you earn another dollar, what's that going to be taxed at versus what you're likely to be taxed at when you pull this money out in the future? You know, so for a lot of people, maybe if you're behind the eight ball on savings, your marginal rate might be 22%, 24%. You got to look at it. Just look at tax tables and say, okay, what's my taxable, uh, what's my income, and what is my marginal rate based on my income that I'm being taxed on? You know, so you're going to be looking at that. And you might look at it and say, oh, it's 24%. And then you go, well, you know, when I pull money out at retirement, let's say I'm using a standard deduction almost 30000 of income that's not taxed at all if I'm married due to the standard deduction. 
then I might have another like another 20,000. Now all these numbers will change as time goes on because they're indexed to inflation. But I have, might, might have the first 30,000 just rounding. It's going to be taxed at zero. The next 20,000 rounding again, uh, taxed at, at 10%. And then you know, I'll have the next like 60,000 is taxed at 12%, you know, rounding again. But you can look at that and go, wow, I can earn a, sign a significant amount of income where I'm not even back up to the 22 or 24% bracket anymore. So in that situation, if I avoid a 24% bracket and I take it, you know, some at zero, some at 10, some at 12, based on the current tax rates, uh, you know, I've deferred down and that can be helpful. And, you know, some people say, well, I read this book and he said this, you know, I read this book and it says, you know, tax rates are going to be like way, way, way higher in the future because of all of our tax problems and all that. And I said, well, you know, the, one of the things you run into is they may not get money out of you through the income tax system in the future. We may have value added taxes like other countries do. A lot of other countries, every time they produce a product and every time there's an improvement, and I like to use the example of cars. So when you make a car, you got the rubber for the tires, you got the engine that's got to go in there, you got you know, electronics that have to go in there, computer chips and, and seats. And, and at every level of production, you might have another tax. Well, countries like that because it's invisible. You don't see it. And you know, what you don't see, you don't feel, and you don't get upset about. Where you get more upset about regular federal income taxes. So you got to be really conscious of the fact that, you know, it may not be necessarily the same tax system when you retire. And that's why you go into tax diversification. And what I mean by that is you might actually do some Roth. You might do some pre-tax, but I usually start off with pre-tax where you get the deduction for the contribution. You don't have to pay tax on the gains in it with qualified plans. You do pay taxes when you pull the money out in the future. But if we end up in a situation where you have some kind of a value-added tax or a consumption tax in the future and they lower income tax rates, you're avoiding a lower tax rate in the future with a Roth. And you go, well, maybe that's not necessarily going to be the greatest thing. So be really careful about this. I'll tell people, really think hard about these types of things as to what might happen in the future. And you can't predict it. But you can do tax diversification and make sure that you have different types of tax treatments, like maybe non-qualified accounts. You know, Non-qualified accounts are taxable as, as it grows, but you can defer a lot because you're earning a lot of the return historically through the capital gains and the growth of the investments, which isn't taxed till the money is pulled out until it's sold at a gain, but then it's subject to a different tax schedule. Like for capital gains rates, if you're in a 10 or 12% bracket, right now the tax rate on capital gains is zero. If you're in 22%, 24%, it's 15 and then, you know, if you get in the very, very highest tax bracket, 37, you're at a 20, and then there, there might be an, ex, you know, an extra tax as well. But again, you don't know what this is going to be in the future. So I'm really tentative in talking about all this stuff. But historically, capital gains have usually been taxed at different rates in different ways. You know, so you think about it and go, wow, gee, maybe that's another level of tax diversification to do that. Now, what happens is this. And I'm going to get into in a second, because the next question was, well, do I pay off the mortgage? Do I pay off the car loan? And then I said, well, you know, let's talk about what the interest rate is and talk about the age. It's not necessarily a no-brainer to do that. And 
you know, many times what happens is you go, well, gee, how long before retirement? I usually, usually, not always, usually like to have the mortgage paid off when somebody retires. This guy's in his 30s. You know, so the reality of it is, uh, it's, it may not be the, necessarily a big deal to get this mortgage all paid off because in, in that situation, what was the interest rate? Well, the interest rate, well, you know, I'll just, I'll tell you now before I go to break, but it was like two is a little bit over 2% and it was a little bit over 2% for the, uh, for the car. And you look at that and go, well, historically, what's the worst 30 year period for large U S stocks? Cause this guy could easily have 30 years probably does. Right. Well, the very worst 30 year period was 10, just like very as eight and a half percent for large U S stocks and higher for other asset, most other asset classes. So you look at that and go, well, he's foregoing, there's a lost opportunity cost. And I don't make this decision for people. I tell people, here are the numbers, make the decision. And you know, for him it was, yeah, that doesn't, I don't, that doesn't feel good. And I said, yeah, the other thing you think about is this, when you put money, money into the mortgage and you put money away and you pay that off, you're investing in real estate because how do you get the money back out if you're disabled? And he goes, gotta sell the house. He said, HELOC. And I laughed and I go, yeah, try to get a HELOC home equity line of credit on a disabled person. They may not want to lend it to you. And he laughed. He goes, yeah, that's probably right. So another thing to think about is you tie up your money when you do that. Now, it's not necessarily, I'm not saying don't pay off the mortgage, but think about that. And then what I did is I said, well, maybe you might want to take a multi-pronged approach. You may want to do a little bit of pre-tax, a little bit of Roth, and then maybe a little bit of paying some of these things off and then saving some money, you know, for the next car purchase. I said, cause I, that's one of the things that I always did when I was younger is I liked having many different goals and I had different things that I was working on at the same time. And the reason I would do that is, is I always found that I was more disciplined to save and pay off debt when I had multiple things going on at the same time, you know, that I would put more money away to pay off debt is what I found for me. That's just something that worked for me. And you know, it was, I, I just, if I had several different things I was working on, I would just do more. It's just psychological more than anything. Now this, for some people, he'd be like, no, nah, I'm not going to put anything extra toward the mortgage based on what you're saying. You know, just because I want that flexibility of having the investments in, if, in case anything happens or, I mean, shoot, some people will look at it and go, well, when I get to age 62, I'm going to do a reverse mortgage. <laughs> I'm not paying off the mortgage at all. I'll do a different type so that I don't have to make payments on. And that's a totally other, tell them different way of handling things. You know, so with a reverse mortgage, what you're doing, people think I'm giving my bank, my home to the bank. No, that's not the way it works. It's just a different type of mortgage. You can make payments on a reverse mortgage and pay it off. People don't realize that, but it's just a, a mortgage that you don't have to make payments on. And for some people, they make a lot of sense. I've taught that, taught about that in other programs. So I won't get into that right now, but it's just an aside of how many different alternatives there are out there. And then I'll, I'll make a point about that in a second, because I think that's really, really important to think about. You know, people think, well, what does a financial advisor do? Oh, they just tell me where to invest. Now there's a whole lot more to it. You know, you're looking at tax laws changing constantly. You're looking at the types of different investment vehicles out there changing constantly. And, and you're looking at 
you know, the differences in, you know, different types of planning strategies based on those tax laws can be changing constantly. You got to keep up with all this stuff and know which ones apply to you. It's a daunting task. So, you know, for a lot of people looking at this and going, gosh, I can't even figure out the investing thing, let alone, you know, do you do Roth pre-tax? Do you do, you know, do I do an H of those? Another question he has, HSA, do I, do I use one? I had to, you know, go into teaching mode on how HSAs worked and how you use them in a financial plan, how much to put in a non-qualified plan, you know, how to, you know, pay down or spend down a non-qualified plan later on, you know, in early retirement, you know, to keep the taxes low so you can do Roth conversions at the time that you retire, and of course, you know, how and when to take Social Security is going to play into all of that. And the taxation of Social Security is going to play into that because right now, as it stands, and again, this could change, uh, pre-tax investment vehicles can affect the taxation of Social Security where Roths don't. Uh, you can have, let's say, your Medicare taxes, you know, Medicare premiums be affected by your income is another thing to think about. And you got to be taking all of this into account. So that, that, was, that was one aspect of it. But what I want to do is I want to hit when we got into the investing thing. Because the guy had done a lot of reading. And, you know, sometimes what happens, we go out there in the internet and we read things that aren't necessarily quite right regarding investing. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. Hey, folks, I want to tell you something I'm really excited about. My new book, Confident Financial Planning, is finally out. It's in paperback, hardcover, Kindle version, and I actually have an audiobook version of it. Uh, it talks about building your financial castle. I use that throughout the book, talking about your investments, your financial plan is kind of like a castle. You have your savings and your emergency funds. I talk about that, debt, good debt, bad debt talk about special goal funds and how to set those things up and how to invest for those types of special things that you might want to do in the future. Types of retirement accounts, different types of taxation of investment accounts, talk about real estate investing and pros and cons of that, how to project retirement assets, and your moat. You know, that's how you protect your castle. It's the risk management aspect of a financial plan. If you want to find out more about that, you go to paulwinkler.com forward slash book to get it. And I uh, hope you enjoy. There's a lot of contradictory stuff out there. And it's so hard because you're sitting there looking at this stuff and going, okay, which part of it's right? Which part of it applies to me? Which doesn't apply to me? And it can be daunting. And like, you know, for us, we use some pretty sophisticated software programs to help in the planning process because it is, it's like monstrously challenging to figure out what do you put money in? And then, you know, another program that we use all the time, uh, it's like, you know, the subscription's like, like $15,000 a year. And it just, for analyzing the, uh, the, the different investment, you know, the different alternatives out there, investment alternatives out there. And you go, oh my goodness, okay. And because you've got 401ks, and when you're looking at your 401ks, you go, I got this choice. And, you know, they got this program out there. It's a, uh, a target date fund. And I've often talked about the problems with target date funds. If you got a target date fund, like a 2040 fund or something like that, then you just stick all your money in that. You don't worry about it. And you just go on your merry little way. And the point that I make about that is that uh, they're really concentrating pretty heavily 
on just a narrow segment of the stock market, believe it or not. You think, wow, they own, like, you know, you might have a Vanguard fund and it has a total, total market fund. Matter of fact, that was one of the funds he brought up. He says, well, this one guy says, the only know, all you need to own is four different mutual funds or something like that. And I said, uh, yeah, let me guess. Vanguard total stock market fund. He goes, yeah, that's it. And I go, yeah. And then the international total stock market fund. Yeah, that was another one. And I said, no. <laughs> That's a really, in my humble opinion, that's a really bad idea. And he said, well, why? And I said, well, you know, if you look at large companies versus small companies, uh, where do you expect more return? And he goes, well, small companies. Uh, good. Exactly. And matter of fact, historically, 83% of 20-year periods, going back to the 1920s, you have small companies outperforming large companies by, by a significant amount. And then, you know, you got value, value companies versus growth companies. And I had to explain the difference between them. And, you know, I said, okay, so there you go. You got another area. And value companies have outperformed growth companies in 96% of 20-year periods. Guess, so what is the, least, the lowest performing historically? Large growth. Guess where most of the money is in these funds? Large growth. <laughs> And you'll have a fund. It has about 4,000 holdings in it. The total stock market fund has almost 4,000 holdings, according to Morningstar in the most recent report. It's 3,903 to be exact, okay? Now, if you look at the holdings, over 6% is an Apple alone, one company. Microsoft's over 5%. Amazon, so you add up the top holdings and you're looking at 20% of the portfolio is in just 10 companies. And, you know, at the, uh, 10 companies out of 3,900, you go, whoa, wait a minute, that's not diversification. That's a problem waiting to happen. And then you go and say, well, what about the international portfolio? And, you know, when you look at the international, total international portfolio, uh, again, you're looking at extreme concentration. And if you look at the percentage of the portfolio that's in small companies, it's next to nothing. It is next to nothing in small companies. So, you know, you go look at it and go, well, how much is a microcap stock? Uh, 0.35. Yes, does it own them? Yes, it does. But 0.35% of the portfolio isn't in there according to Morningstar. And you go, oh my goodness, that's not diversification either. And yet it owns 7,900 companies. And most of the money, again, is in the, the, not, not, not most of the money, but a large percentage of the money is in the top holdings or the top largest companies in there. And, and so you go, well, wait a minute. What, what happened in diversification? It's marketing. It's a total international stock portfolio. It's a total U.S. stock portfolio. It sounds like I'm diversified. And yet, as you can hear, it is not. And what happening? It's happening is you're holding most of the money in a lower performing historically area of the market. Well, why would they do that? Because many fund companies, the main thing that they market on is nothing but expense ratio. That's it. What's the lowest expense ratio? That's it. That's our investment performance. Just lowest thing. And you know, do we ever do that anyplace else? Do I, I just want the lowest cost car? No, because <laughs> I probably won't last. I want the lowest cost, you know. So, you know, some things you can get away with low cost. But there are a lot of things that it doesn't make any sense because you have to cut tremendous corners 
and I don't have a dog in the fight. We don't sell mutual funds. I mean, it's not, we don't get paid by the, by the mutual fund companies or anything like that. So it's not an issue of that. It is simply an issue of you end up with a portfolio that's not what you think it is, but you have fallen for something that is mainly marketing. And it sounds great. And yes, our expenses, keeping them low, absolutely, no question about it. But you don't do that myopically. It costs more money to manage an international small portfolio. Just bottom line, it costs more money to manage a small cap portfolio. It costs more money to manage a portfolio where you're not just weighting everything based on the size of the company. And that's what, that's what you're seeing right here. You know, you're weighting it. So the reason that the big companies are more of those funds is that it is weighted based on the size of the company. So if you look at Apple and say, well, that's the biggest company, well, that's where most of the money is going to go, in the one biggest company. And we all know that the bigger they are, the harder they fall. But yet, that's what I'm doing. And the next biggest company is Microsoft. So I'm putting the second most amount of money in that. And you go, well, wait a minute. What if those companies don't do so well? It, you got a problem. You got a problem. You know, so hence, what happens is you're ignoring that aspect of investing. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. If you want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there, and if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., PWI, an investment advisor registered in the state of Tennessee. PWI does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation. This information is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any securities.